Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, good morning once again, guys. I've got one announcement here before we dive into God's Word. You're invited to uh, join us for a lunch and after service this morning. We are celebrating Dr. Cameron Wold joining our um, River Bible family here as our associate pastor. So, yes. We are so grateful that the Lord brought him. So we're going to have some food. We're going to have some treats. And we'll have some stories, maybe. So you guys are all invited to that. All right, if you would, please turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 today. If you're visiting with us or if you're a guest um, and you don't have a Bible or anybody doesn't have a Bible, we have um, God's Word in the back there by the AV booth. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you do have God's Word in your hand and that you're able to take that home. Well, as you turn to Matthew 5, let me do a review we have been studying the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse for the past five months. In chapter 1, Matt taught us that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, which also means that He is uh, the Son of God. It also means that Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is both God in His divinity and He is also human. Um, Matthew provided great insight into Jesus' earthly lineage along with his miraculous birth. In chapter 2, Matthew showed us that there is always a remnant of people willing to go out of their way to worship God. And we, we saw this with the Magi. And we learned the importance of that unique visit. Uh, Matthew also showed us that even though Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus doesn't get a pass on the troubles of the world. Uh, from infancy, we learned how Jesus' life was filled with drama, and we saw that when, when, uh, when King Herod tried to kill him. In chapter 3, Matthew also introduced us to a new character, John the Baptizer. And he is quite the character indeed. He preached a message of repentance. Jesus called John the greatest prophet to ever live. In chapter 4, Matthew then showed us how and why Jesus was baptized. And then he was immediately tempted by the devil for 40 days and for 40 nights. And after overcoming all of those temptations, Jesus officially started his ministry by calling the first set of disciples. Two sets of brothers. We have Peter and Andrew, and then James and John. Uh, they were fishermen, and Jesus called them to be fishers of men. And these disciples, they were by Jesus' side, and they're going to be by Jesus' side, for the next several, several years here. They heard Jesus teach. They heard him preach. They were also eyewitnesses to the miracles of Jesus. And uh, last Sunday, we discussed the why of miracles. Why of teaching? Why of, of preaching? Matthew also showed us the connection of Jesus' miracles to the kingdom of God. 
And all that sets us up for today in, in Matthew chapter 5, because today's text really is a seismic shift in the, in the gospel of, of Matthew. Today we begin an overview of the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. We know, that we know this sermon as the, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter, chapters 5 through 7. This sermon has been one of the most studied discourses in the entire world. It's been studied by Jews and Christians, atheists, and all flavors and denominations of different religions. And the reason that Jesus' sermon has been the most studied and the most scrutinized sermon on the planet is because it is the source of truth. No other book has been more cited than the Bible. No book other than the Bible has as many other books written about this book. <laughs> and specifically, we can say that the same thing about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's account here seems to be a shortened report of, of Jesus' sermon. The sermon itself can be read in about 15 or 20 minutes. And although we're going to study Jesus' sermon here verse by verse, it is important to know that the sermon itself is one continuous message from the Lord Jesus. The theme of the sermon is the kingdom of heaven. And that's why Matthew gave us an overview of Jesus' teaching, his preaching, and all those miracles from last week. Once again, Jesus performed miracles because the kingdom of heaven is now on earth. Jesus' miracles, they validated who God the Father said Jesus was at his baptism. Jesus' miracles served as messianic credentials. Messianic, he is the Messiah. He is, Jesus is the Christ. He is God's anointed man. So in other words, Jesus' miracles were a verification of his deity. And because the kingdom of heaven is now on earth, there is a new king. Uh, who leads and he judges, and get this, he even wants to bless his people. Please note here from the very start, Jesus never talks about politics or any type of social reform in this sermon. People have tried to turn this sermon into some sort of mantra for the so-called social gospel. And because Jesus doesn't address social or political issues here, the Sermon on the Mount really is one of the most misunderstood messages that Jesus ever gave. The principles discussed in this sermon are contrary to those of, of human governments because the world's ways, it's about external things, right? It's, it's about what you do. God's ways are about internal things. It's who we are. The world's ways, they're, they're physical and they're political, God's ways are moral, they are spiritual. And, and one of the keys to understanding Jesus' sermon is found in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 20. Let me show this to you. Jesus says this, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness, unless the way that you live, unless your right standing with God surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Dang. All right, Jesus, what's that mean? 
Well, the religious leaders, they had an artificial external righteousness that was based on the Mosaic law in the first century. Righteousness, that's just a big fancy word for saying there's a right way of living. So these guys, these religious leaders, they look really good on the outside because they followed all the rules. But here's the thing, and this is really crazy to see. Following the rules, as they did, it prevented them from loving God and loving people. Consider the the prodigal son's brother, right? He followed the rules. Following the rules without a change in our hearts, that's just called religion. And Jesus hates religion. We tend to think, or or maybe some of us were, were taught, you know, if I do this... Well, God is going to do that. And that kind of thinking and teaching, is, it's not based on a relationship. It's, it's based on a formula that always breaks down. But as we're going to find out here, Jesus is not looking for obedient robots. He's not looking for huge crowds where he can charge admission to put on a show. He's not doing that. Jesus is looking for disciples. He's looking for people whose lives are messy, but yet their heart is tender. So how's your heart this morning? Is it tender? How's your life? Is it messy? If it's not messy, you're in the wrong place, friend. We live messy lives. Boy, did it get quiet in here. Well, let me just say this. If your heart is tender and your life is a mess, then this is the right place for you. And this sermon is for you. Because Jesus is interested in in your heart, which, which leads to our character, right? Our character involves certain characteristics that will flow from our hearts willingly. Now, within the Sermon on the Mount, there is a certain context here that we tend to miss before we dive in. And I I do want to mention this. And we tend to miss this because we're not first century Jews. The overall context is that Jesus is correcting the false teachings of of the rabbis. He is correcting their interpretation of the Torah. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, right? We got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's that's the law of Moses. That's the Mosaic law. So he's going to correct all this. And as we said over the past several months, Jesus is the new Moses. Now, that's a bit scary because Moses is a lawgiver, and we can't live up to the law. Moses taught righteous actions, but what we're going to see Jesus do here, Jesus teaches righteous attitudes that lead to righteous actions. See, Jesus doesn't demand only pure hands, but a pure heart. Moses taught that we are to do right. However, Jesus came to fulfill the law because we can't do anything right. We can't do anything right spiritually or morally. At one time or another, we are all far from God. Every single one of us. We're all on the same playing field. So Jesus came from heaven to earth to fulfill the law so that we can be right. So dear friends, the Sermon on the Mount 
it restates the entire Old Testament law in two chapters. And that's the genius of it. The Sermon on the Mount clearly shows our dire situation before a holy, holy, holy God. See, Jesus reveals how we will never fulfill God's perfect standards on our own in this sermon. And since we cannot live up to his divine standards, see, we need someone outside of this world to come and enable us to do so. Lastly, the Sermon on the Mount gives God's pattern for happiness. Now, I've joked many, many times from this pulpit that you'll never hear me preach a sermon on how to live your best life now. Well, the Sermon on the Mount, that's as close as we're going to get to all that. Uh, Because believe it or not, God does want us to be happy. He does. Many Christians walk around acting like they've been baptized in prune juice. (laughs) Their face is all shriveled and you look angry, right? Face is all sour and bitter. Well, I'm not going to give you the bait and switch here. I'm not doing that. And I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel stuff either. Here's the thing. Our happiness, it it must come through holiness. That's what God's going to show us. We as finite and flawed people, we we can't define true happiness. So it's in Jesus's sermon where he defines happiness for us. So what is his definition of happiness? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word today. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 4, verse 25, to give us the context from last week. Large crowds followed Jesus from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And when Jesus saw those crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, because they're going to see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And this is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Thank you, guys. Please have a seat. All right, let's take a deeper look here at verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Matthew, our gospel writer here, he refers to those crowds in verses 23 through 25 from last week. So the crowds are following Jesus primarily because of his miracles. It's the miracles. It's not the teaching. It's not the preaching 
that made Jesus so popular with the crowds. Now, we do know that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. We see this in Matthew chapter 9. He says, uh, when, he, when Jesus saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed. The crowds were stressed out. They, they were dejected. They were rejected. Nobody wanted them. And they were, they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So back to verse 1, when he saw the crowds, Jesus has compassion on the crowds, but Jesus does something here that other preachers don't do. Although Jesus has compassion, he's not going to cater to them. Jesus is not impressed with large crowds. Nowhere in Scripture do we see this. And the reason that Jesus is not impressed is because Jesus wants disciples. He doesn't want crowds. We're going to see this play out here in a minute. So back to verse 1. So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. So Jesus is moving away from the crowds. Most other preachers, they're going to stay where the action is, aren't we? Jesus has a plan, though. He, he chooses to hike up a hill. And this hike, I think it gives him time to think and to pray. It's almost as if, as if he's testing the crowd. Are they going to follow him? Are they going to become disciples? Or are they only interested in becoming physically healed? Now, we're not ex exactly sure of the location of this mountain. As far as we know, the mountain, it's not rugged terrain like we usually think of. Instead, it's probably a really large hill. Luke's gospel confirms that. Uh, we see the definite article here, the mountain. Instead of a mountain, it hints that this is a prominent place by the locals, and most likely it was, it was close to Jesus' hometown of Capernaum. There is a place called Tabga, and Tabga fits this description really well. It's a beautiful grassy hill about two miles outside of Jesus' home of Capernaum. Uh, Tabga is the traditional site of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You can see it there. It's just beautiful, isn't it? It's, it's on, it sits on a ridge of hills just outside of town. It offers this gorgeous view of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there are remains of a small Byzantine chapel there, probably from the 4th century. Uh, that was built to commemorate Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There's also another church there built in the 20th century that marks the same site today. But regardless of the location, in Matthew's Gospel, mountains and hills, they mean something. They are significant. In fact, Matt records Jesus on a mountain seven times in his gospel. We see Jesus on a mountain in chapter 4 during his temptation. Chapter 5, we see him on a mountain here, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, chapter 14, Jesus goes up to pray on a mountain. Chapter 15, Jesus healed and he fed the multitudes, these large crowds on a mountain. Chapter 17, Jesus was on a mountain with the Mount of, of Transfiguration. Uh, chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus gave that sermon to his disciples on another mountain. And of course, chapter 28 with the Great Commission. All of these things, Jesus was on a hill or a mountain. So why? Why does Matthew take the time to correlate Jesus and mountains? Well, remember Moses? Remember Mount Sinai? It's on a mountain where God speaks to Moses. He gives him the Ten Commandments. So Matthew continues to portray here Jesus as a new Moses. 
here in chapter 5. And while Mount Sinai was cold, and it was bleak, it was barren. The Sermon on the Mount, it's warm and it's beautiful, and the, and, the, and the landscapes are just gorgeous. Look at that. At Mount Sinai, uh, God shows up surrounded by thunder and lightning. People were so scared, they told Moses, uh, Moses, you can talk to God. All right, that's your job, but we don't want to talk to God. We volunteer for you for that. But here at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is sitting down with the people. Nobody's scared. Nobody's fearful. So back to verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down. So Jesus sits down. Now, when a rabbi sits down, this signals a formal time of, of teaching. Uh, even today, we, we speak of professors holding a chair um, in a university. We use the, the terminology chairman of the board. And what that means, it really signals that they have authority on the subject matter that they're teaching. So Jesus sits down, and in, uh, in verse 1, his disciples come to him. So the disciples recognize that this is now a time of formal teaching. Everybody gathers around Jesus. It would be similar to our small groups today. Many of us gather around a table or, or maybe we, we set up chairs in a, in a circle. The, the same thing is happening here. Uh, the twelve probably formed a circle around Jesus, and they're sitting at his feet. So verse 2, what's Jesus do now? He begins to teach them. He begins to teach them. Isn't that interesting? Who's the them? The them is the disciples. Jesus is not focused on the crowds. He's not preaching to the crowd like I'm preaching to you this morning. He's not standing up. He's not raising his voice. The, the crowd was free to, to stand around or maybe sit down by the disciples and listen in, absolutely. But the Sermon on the Mount was given primarily to Jesus' disciples. Luke's Gospel confirms this in Luke 6.20. Looking up at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed. So even though Jesus had compassion for the individual people in the crowds, the problem, however, once again, is that Jesus didn't necessarily want crowds of people. He wants disciples from those crowds of people. And it's his disciples that we see Jesus preach to this morning. So what's Jesus do next? Verse 2, he began to teach them. So this is amazing. God delivered the sermon. It's been said that the greatest preacher who ever lived preached the greatest sermon ever preached. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus didn't quote any other source in his sermon. So, for example, if you guys have my notes today, you're going you're gonna to see a dozen or more um, sources that I cited in the bibliography. Why do I do that? Because I, I don't stand up here on my own authority. That's a really bad idea. I have the privilege of standing on the shoulders of theological giants. And, and the rabbis, they did the same thing in the first century. When they preached, they would read the text, and then they would expound on it, and they would say something like this. Well, you know, rabbi so-and-so says this, and rabbi so-and-so says that. 
And we, we hear preachers do a variation of this today, don't we? We hear many preachers give a, a sermon with three points, and then, of course, we have to have the C.S. Lewis quote at the end. I mean... But what we're going to see Jesus do throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount here, what he's going to do, he's going to preach and proclaim the divine inter interpretation of the Hebrew Bible. Jesus will give a correct hermeneutic on the, on the Torah. Once again, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all five of those books. Now, if you have a New King James Version or an ESV or a NASB, your verse says something like this. He opened his mouth and taught them. That phrase may sound a little odd, may, may sound a little redundant to us. I mean, we read that verse and we're like, well, of course. Of course Jesus opened his mouth. How, how else would he teach? But really that phrase is a Jewish expression stating what Jesus is about to say is profound. This is profound. So we better pay pretty close attention here. So verse 2 continues, he began to teach them saying, blessed, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the humble, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now at this point, when Jesus starts to, to say these things, the disciples, along with the crowd, they have to be a bit confused. Uh, the beginning of the sermon is filled with what's called a list of these beatitudes, the Latin word beati, right? It's beatitudes, it's translated blessed. And one of the reasons that everyone is confused here is because of how the Old Testament ends. They have no idea that they're living in, in an era that has changed. We went from the era of law to the era of grace. And the last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And the last message to the Jews is this, Malachi 4.6. God says, listen up, guys. I will come and strike the land with a curse. That doesn't sound real pleasant. The Old Testament ends with a curse. And Jesus begins preaching about blessings. Hmm. Now the Jews, they were used to hearing about this prophecy of doom. And yet Jesus doesn't shy away from these prophecies at all. Uh, they're, pro they're called prophecies of woe. W-O-E. Remember when Jesus warned the Pharisees? He said, woe to you, you scribes and you Pharisees. You guys are all a bunch of hypocrites. But here with the Beatitudes, these are prophecies of what's called weal. W-E-A-L. They're not woe. Jesus brings blessings to his disciples. Jesus uses that word blessing nine times at the beginning of this sermon. So we should probably slow down here and figure out what he means by that word blessed before we move on. So the Greek word for blessed is makarios, which literally means happy. Makarios, it corresponds to the Hebrew word ashrei. Ashrei means blessed. It means happy. It means carefree and fortunate. But here's the difference. It means all of those things at the same time. 
The problem that we have is that the English language, it doesn't contain one single word that translates all of these words well to really encompass the full meaning. So we have to use other adjectives to, to really understand the concept here. Because the English word happy, it's based on hap. Hap, it means chance. Happenstance, right? Whatever happens, that's what happy means. So the English word happy and blessed, in and among themselves, they are inadequate to understand what Jesus is saying. Our 21st century definition of happy, it pollutes uh, the, the meaning of what Jesus is saying here. So happiness to us... It refers to how we feel about someone or something at the moment. Happiness drives our emotions. And that is not what Jesus is preaching about. Our happiness is circumstantial. It's not good. When our happiness is based on circumstances, our happiness is then temporary. So our happiness is derived from whether we had a good day or not. Our happiness depends on other people. Have you ever thought about that? That our happiness is based on other people? That we allow others to control our happiness and essentially our lives? Regardless, the word happy, it's, it really is bankrupt of its true biblical meaning. So, the, so most translators, what they do here is they, they translate this word blessed. Blessed is a better word. But it still doesn't convey the rich meaning that Jesus is communicating here. But here's the picture. When Jesus says blessed, Jesus is describing a person who is favored by God. And because of God's favor on this person, this person can't help but to be blessed and happy and carefree and fortunate. And once again, it's all of those things at the same time. And that brings us to key point number one. Blessed, what it does, it implies an inward satisfaction that does not depend on outward circumstances for happiness. Blessed, it implies an inward satisfaction that does not depend on outward circumstances for happiness. So imagine the disciples' reaction here when Jesus started his sermon with the word blessed. To, to a Jew, this meant divine joy. This means perfect happiness. And, and we see this concept in Psalm 1. This is amazing. Psalm 1 starts with another beatitude. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor does he stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. See, a, a person blessed by God doesn't, listen or really care what the ungodly have to say about any subject matter. A person blessed by God will not stand in their way or try to change their mind. A person blessed by God certainly isn't going to sit down with them and listen to them rant and rave and just scoff about all of their opinions. Why? Verse 2, because his delight is in the law of the Lord. Someone who is favored by God, his delight is in God's word. It's the Bible. And it's on God's word that he meditates day and night. This idea of blessedness, it flows from being chosen by God. And because God has shown mercy and grace to save our wretched souls, we can't help but 
to want to spend time with him and to want to read his word. We spend time with him because we love him. We, We love him because he first loved us. We spend time with the people and the things that we love. So what's the result of having all of this divine favor? Well, God changes us from the inside out. There's an inward change in our thinking. There's an inward change in our hearts and our our behavior. We say it this way, right? There's a change in our head as God renews our mind. There's a change in our heart. God's given us a new heart, which leads to a change in our hands. Head, heart, hands. God changes all of those things. And in verse 3, look what happens. This person is like a tree planted by streams or rivers of water that yield its fruit in its season. Its leaves do not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Being blessed by God is not something that we earn. It is a gift. And Jesus says that real happiness, this idea of blessedness, right? It comes from mature character. Mature character takes time, similar to uh, a tree growing and producing fruit. So external worldly forces cannot deprive us of our inward spiritual character. That's why hypocrites within the faith, they can't be hypocrites long. Their sin will always be exposed. It may take years, may take decades, but it will come to light Now, we do have a problem with Jesus' sermon. It's the same problem that the Jews had in the first century. So let's read some of this. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Poor in spirit, it it means we're all spiritually bankrupt. It means we don't know anything about the spiritual life. You say, wait a second, Jesus, time out. Don't you mean blessed are the seminary graduates? They at least know Hebrew and Greek. Jesus goes, no. Verse 4, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Hang on, Jesus. Come on. I don't want to be sad. I don't want to mourn. Don't you mean blessed are the joyful, for they are content with themselves and they don't need anybody else. Isn't that what you mean? Verse 5, Jesus continues here, Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Oh, Jesus, I'm not liking the sound of that at all. I mean, don't you mean blessed are the arrogant and the powerful because they have their inheritance right now? That's what you mean, Jesus, right? Verse 6, Jesus continues, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Well, Jesus, that doesn't sound right either. I mean, don't you mean blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the good things in life? For they will be physically satisfied. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Oh, come on, Jesus. Man, that that may sound good in theory, but that will never work in the real world. Don't you mean blessed are the merciless? Don't you mean blessed are the mercy-less? For they will accumulate it all. 
And Jesus goes on and on and on, and he turns the world's values upside down on its head. And over the next several months, we're going to learn and we're going to pursue what true happiness is from God's perspective. We're going to see Jesus address false faith. We're we're going to see him address anger. You struggling with anger this morning? He's going to address that. Adultery. Jesus addresses sexual sin and pornography and lust. He's going to deal with that situation. Uh, He's going to to deal with the tragedy of divorce. Lies. He's going to show us what true love is. And what it really looks like to give and serve and pray and fast. He's going to show us how to handle possessions. He's going to show us how to deal with our anxiety. Are you anxious this morning? He's going to teach us how to deal with that. And then Jesus ends his sermon with how to enter the kingdom of of God. How do we get our ticket to heaven? Well, Jesus starts with the kingdom. At the beginning of a sermon, he also ends with it. It's absolutely amazing. I want to end today's sermon by looking at, at our key point again. Blessed implies an inward satisfaction that does not depend on an outward circumstance for happiness. So what outside circumstances, what people, what events, what's stealing your joy this morning? What's stealing true happiness today? What are, the, what are the things that you're worried about that you have zero control over? Maybe a better question is, what do you have control over? It's not outward, right? What we do have control over is inward. We, we do have control over our mind and our heart. So let me give you four examples here that are modern-day joy stealers. Number one, watching the news. You want to be angry? Turn on the local news. Now, there is a difference between checking the news and watching the news. Number two, engaging with social media. That'll get you uptight in a heartbeat, won't it? <laughs> politics, the discussion of politics, these, these hot topics that everybody's got to talk about. Boy, that'll steal your joy. And number, number four, too much screen time. Too much screen time. Whether you're on your phone, iPad, computer, that will steal your joy. See, the more time you spend in the world, the more time that you're involved in arguing about the woes of, of human government and current events and all these politics, the more miserable you will be. Why do these things bring misery, though? Because we don't have any control of what's going on. We don't have any control of the stories that are, that are airing. And dear friends, you will never convince anyone of anything on social media. When it comes to politics, as Christians, we know how God uses politicians for his glory 
and our good. We've read the end of the book. We know how the story ends. And lastly, too much screen time. What that does is it prevents the deepening of human relationships and human contact. However, you guys get to choose what you want to do with your free time. Jesus will never chase you down and force you to do something you don't want to do. He loves you, allows you to choose for yourself. I think of the rich young ruler. I think that's a, he's a perfect example of that. The man walked away from him. And Jesus was, was sad. However, please do know this. The kind of blessings that we're talking about here within the Sermon on the Mount, they are for disciples of Jesus. That the world cannot and will not ever experience true happiness. Ever. For anyone to experience what Jesus preaches here, it starts with being born again. So are you? Are you born again? Have you confessed your sin? Have you confessed that Jesus is the Lord of your life? Do you believe that, that he walked out of his own grave after three days and he conquered death? See, that's where it starts. For those of you who are disciples of Jesus, well, go therefore into the Verde Valley and be disciple makers and proclaim what true happiness is. Amen? Amen. All right, guys, please stand for today's prayer and benediction. Today's benediction comes from Philippians 2.7. May the God of peace, I guess we could say, may the God of happiness, which surpasses all understanding, may he guard you, may he guard your heart, and may he guard your mind in Christ Jesus. Amen, amen. and amen. amen. All right, guys, if you have questions on anything today, uh, we have a prayer room through the foyer to the right. You're more, more than welcome to stay for our, our luncheon uh, through those doors um, for inside the fellowship hall. May God bless you.